Okay, well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Um, first off, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome you to the LSE for anyone who's not already staff or student here, uh, and this evening's event, which is co-hosted with the Royal Society of Literature. This event forms part of the New World Disorders series, which is being held here in the run-up to the LSE Festival. The LSE Festival is a week-long series of talks, most, if not all, of which are open to the public. It's run the festival itself goes between the 25th of February and the 2nd of March. Uh, it is free and, and it is open to all to attend. Uh, and it, it tries to explore how social science can help tackle global issues. Questions like how did we get to where we are, what are the challenges we face, and how can we address them. So there are some festival leaflets in, in the bag you've received. If you didn't pick up a bag, leaflets look like this, uh, the New World Disorders, and it's, it's a, basically a calendar of events uh, that you can attend talks, seminars, but also musical events as well that are held in this library on Thursdays. So my name is Dr. Justin Parkhurst. I am an associate professor of global health policy here at the LSE in the Department of Health Policy. I'm also the current serving chair of the Global Health Initiative, which is a cross-school initiative to try and coordinate and link up work that we do on global health issues. I'm very pleased today to be welcoming our three speakers. We have Catherine Arnold, Dr. Stephen Roberts, and Dr. Seema Yasmin. Catherine Arnold, on my left, your right. Uh, she read English at Cambridge and holds a further degree in psychology. Her latest book is Pandemic 1918, The Story of the Deadliest Influenza in History. Catherine's other titles include Necropolis London and Its Dead and Underworld London, A History of Capital Punishment in London. Stephen Roberts is an LSE Fellow in Global Health Policy. He's an instructor on the MSC in Global Health Policy and a member of the LSE Global Health Initiative. Dr. Roberts is also an associate researcher at the Center for Global Health Policy at the University of Sussex. His current research focuses on the role of algorithms and the digital turn of infectious disease surveillance within practices of global health security. And his work has been published in academic journals, including Security Dialogue and the European Journal of Risk Regulation. And Dr. Seema Yasmin is an Emmy award-winning journalist, author, and medical doctor. She read medicine in Cambridge and journalism at the University of Toronto. Her first book charts the course of the HIV-AIDS pandemic and the life of a scientist who fought to the end of the outbreak. She teaches science journalism and global health storytelling at Stanford University, where she's director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. So tonight, 100 years after the Spanish influenza outbreak, we have a popular historian, a science writer, and a global health researcher here to discuss some of the social impacts and the social causes, perhaps, of pandemics through time, and how viruses, quarantine ideas, and contagion continue to inspire our dystopian literary images. For those on Twitter in the audience, the uh, Twitter hashtag for this is hashtag LSE Festival. So it's up on the screens there, all one word, LSE Festival. Uh, I'd remind you all, please, to put your phone on silence at this point so as not to disrupt the event. This event is being recorded, uh, with, uh, assuming we have no technical uh, problems, and hopefully the podcast will be made as possible as soon as possible after the event. Uh, as usual, after, this, after the talks, we'll have a bit of discussion, and then there will be time for questions from the audience and Q&A. However, there will also be a book signing for anyone who's interested in purchasing uh, both Dr. Yasmin and Catherine Arnold's books. They'll be for sale at the back of the room, and the, and the authors will stay at the front here in, in order to sign uh, if anyone would like to. Right. So without further ado, I would first like to welcome Catherine Arnold, uh, who will be setting the scene for us in the context uh, about global pandemics. 
Thank you very much. The captain looked suddenly tired. Sometimes, I think, Mr Benson, the very air is poisoned with that damned influenza. For four years now, millions of rotting corpses have covered a good part of Europe, from the Channel to Arabia. We can't escape it even when we're 2,000 miles out to sea. It seems to come as it did on our last trip, like a dark and invisible fog. Another account. In Brockton, Massachusetts, 8,000 people, 20% of the city's population fell ill. The chair of Brockton's Board of Health told one nurse, combating Spanish flu was like fighting with a ghost. One morning, a young woman arrived at Brockton Hospital suffering from Spanish flu. Her lungs were already full of blood and she was seven months pregnant. The baby was born prematurely and died at birth, but I did not dare tell the mother, said the nurse. She kept begging me to see baby. I assured her that he was fine and beautiful and she would hold him as soon as she was stronger. She had such a lovely look on her face, but it was an effort for her to talk as her lungs were filling. She died. How is that? Is that better, everybody? Yeah, just heckle me if you can't hear. I'm used to it. (laughs) It was an effort for her to talk, and her lungs were filling. She died later that afternoon. I put the baby into her arms, and they seemed only to be sleeping. And this is how her, her husband found her when he came. This is from the memoir of Dr. Victor C. Vaughan, who was one of the leading doctors in the First World War, leading army surgeon. I see hundreds of young stalwart men in the uniform of their country coming into the wards of the hospital in groups of ten or more. They are placed in the cots until every bed is full and others crowd in. Their faces soon wear a bluish cast. A distressing cough brings up the bloodstained sputum. In the morning... The bodies are stacked about the morgue like so much cordwood. The saddest part of my life was when I witnessed the hundreds of deaths of the soldiers in the army camps, and I did not know what to do. At that moment, I decided never again to prate about the great achievements of medical science and to humbly admit our dense ignorance in this case. So these are just a few of the eyewitness reports I've used in my book. They're the voices of those who witnessed the horror of Spanish flu at first hand in the final year of the First World War. Just a bit more context. In three successive waves, from spring 1918 to summer 1919, the phenomenon that became known as Spanish flu killed an estimated 100 million people globally. The United States recorded 550,000 deaths. European deaths totaled over 2 million. In England and Wales alone, 200,000. But globally, the toll was far higher, with around 18 million dying in India. It was fuelled by the troop movements of the First World War, which turned the globe into a giant petri dish and just to sum up it was the most disgusting disease this manifestation of flu led to hemorrhaging vomiting diarrhea and people died 
within hours of contracting it. It seemed, in the words of Dr. Vaughan indeed, that the end of the world was nigh, and many people thought that this epidemic, they didn't use the word pandemic then, they used epidemic, they believed this epidemic was like the, the plague of the 14th century and would wipe out humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. So some first-hand eyewitness accounts from 100 years ago. We're going to move on now to Stephen Roberts, who will be talking to us about his research, I think, in, in the field of global uh, pandemics and global health. Uh, so good evening, everyone. I hope you can hear me sufficiently on the mic system. Good. Uh, thank you, Justin, um, for the introduction. Um, Catherine, thank you for the, that very compelling uh, reading and for setting the scene in thinking about uh, the 1918 H1N1 um, pandemic and the 100 years um, that have passed since then. It's a real pleasure to be on this panel this evening, Catherine, uh, and with you, Seema, as well. Um, as we think about together uh, and discuss the 100 years that have passed uh, since the 1918 uh, Spanish influenza, and 100 years onward, how we contemplate uh, pandemic disaster uh, in the 21st century, and also when we think about what practices and responses are at our disposal when thinking about dealing uh, with global challenges and problems um, such as pandemic influenza. As a global health researcher uh, here in the Department of Health Policy, a lot of my work uh, focuses on transformations in surveillance practices uh, used in which to track and anticipate a pandemic. And in the 100 years that have passed since the 1918 Spanish influenza, uh, and amidst a backdrop of potential new global pandemics, including HIV-AIDS, uh, concerns about H5N1, SARS, Ebola, and MERS, um, we have witnessed a dramatic transformation uh, in disease uh, surveillance practices and capacities uh, in which to track deadly pathogens. So this evening, as part of my presentation and focusing on some of my research, I would like to speak to you about uh, three, or what I consider three, of these um, significant uh, transformations in contemporary disease surveillance practices for tracking uh, pandemic in the 21st century. First of all, uh, in the 100 years that have passed um, since the H1N1 uh, influenza pandemic, we can say that there is a new direction for disease surveillance, uh, what I refer to in my work as the digital turn of disease surveillance. In 2018 and 2019, 100 years later, disease surveillance has went online, and it is digital. We now have at our disposal more data than ever. In fact, we live in the era which is so commonly referred to as the era of big data. I'm sure you've heard this uh, term before. Data is constantly generating. Uh, we have data in which to anticipate and forecast and track numerous challenges, including uh, health challenges as well. Uh, numerous states and countries are in fact using new digital technologies uh, and surveillance platforms uh, to enhance the detection of disease outbreaks and potential pandemics. And in some cases, over the past two decades, we've seen that these detection capacities have been beyond the capacity of the state to control uh, as well. Digital disease surveillance can now be individual. Uh, it can be crowdsourced. It can be global. It can be practiced online or via smartphones, on desktop computers, uh, and through tablets and computers. This digital turn I think, first of all, is very distinct 
and very different than the traditional surveillance measures which existed in 1918, which were grounded in hospitals, practiced in clinics, and recorded in population records. Second of all, in this era of big data, we can also see the emergence of new instruments of disease surveillance to track pandemic. With more data, we understand, comes more possibilities to anticipate and to assess and to prepare for these potential pandemic challenges. However, big data, as I often say, results in big dilemmas. How can we collect oceans of data as humans on one hand or human communities? How can we process it? How can we render it visible and actionable in detecting the next or forthcoming pandemic? In short, we as humans cannot. Therefore, over the past two decades, with the rise of new digital surveillance systems for tracking pandemic, we've also seen a new instrument of knowledge production develop within these systems. Pandemic surveillance practices have been, become increasingly automated and digitized on one hand, and increasingly what we've seen are sophisticated algorithms and digital algorithms, which are now used to collect, to aggregate, to assess, to filter, and to produce knowledge of these complex health emergencies taken from big data sets. Interestingly, what I see here is that the role of the human as the primary agent of disease surveillance is critically resituated with the rise of the algorithm and automation in an era of big data on one hand and pandemic threat on the other. Lastly, we can also observe with these new forms of surveillance the emergence of new actors within the politics of infectious disease surveillance. In an era, for example, of infinite new data sources for pandemic surveillance, who or what owns these data? Who has the power, the financial resources, and the technical capacity to translate data into knowledgeable of disease threats and to make the data speak? In my current work, I argue that the rise of new digital surveillance practices, which process big data, to produce warnings of pandemic, also brings forth new actors in the politics of pandemic. We can understand these new actors as the data monopolists. With the rise of processing big data to track pandemic, what we now see are private profit-driven tech corporations, including Google, but also unlimited to Twitter and Facebook which have emerged as powerful actors in the new politics of pandemic <coughs> surveillance. For it is these organizations in an era of big data who possess the te technical, financial, logistical, and organizational means required to produce mass sets of data and curate warnings of forthcoming pandemics. What we increasingly also see in this time of pandemic threat is governments and international organizations are increasingly reliant on these data monopolists for enhanced surveillance reporting of diseases. This was prominently exhibited in 2009, for example, during the previous H1N1 global pandemic where the US Department of Health and Human Services utilized digital surveillance data supplied by Google in order to track and estimate the prevalency of H1N1 infections across the United States. 
While global health authorities have indeed demonstrated a new openness uh, for utilizing these new digital technologies to enhance pandemic surveillance, notably for human and for animal influenza surveillance, the place, the motivation, and the limits of these transnational data monopolists as arguably new players in global health surveillance, I argue, remains unclear at best. So to conclude my brief overview uh, for discussions this evening, I've identified a number of significant transformations in pandemic surveillance practices which have occurred in the 100 years since the last passing of the 1918 H1N1 pandemic. I think in many ways these transformations have advanced practices, practices of influenza and infectious disease surveillance to detect pandemics, but I also believe that they usher forward a number of critical concerns in an era of big data, we can talk about issues of data scarcity, problems with data quality, and as well as the involvement of the private sector in global public initiatives such as global health. I'd like to thank you all for your attention uh, while I've given my overview this evening, uh, and I do hope that we do have some time um, on the panel to discuss some of these issues that I've outlined. So thank you very much for your attention. Great. Thank you so much, Stephen. So I think that nicely bookends the last hundred years, in a sense, and some of the dramatic changes we've seen. And it, and it is my pleasure to introduce our final speaker, Dr. Seema Yasmin, who will be presenting a reading from her book. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for sharing your evening with us. And thank you to the Royal Society of Literature for inviting me and for the LSE for co-hosting this. It's really an honor to be sharing a platform with an esteemed author your books are amazing, and with Global Health Scholars. I'm going to read a short excerpt from my first book, which is called The Impatient Dr. Langer. And it's a biography of my mentor, the person who inspired me, in fact, to go to medical school because I didn't want to be a doctor when I was younger. And Dr. Jupp Langer was a Dutch HIV-AIDS scientist and a physician himself, and he was working on a cure for HIV really phenomenal man because he graduated medical school in 1981 right as this new, strange, nameless disease was rearing its head. And along the course of about three decades of his medical career and of the HIV epidemic, he was responsible for some of the most pioneering interventions against HIV. The reason I wrote the book was because four years ago, he was killed he was on the Malaysia Airlines plane that was shot down over the Ukraine. He was on his way to an international AIDS conference at the time, as were about half a dozen other people on that plane, and he was going to talk about a cure for HIV. So, you know, oftentimes scientists aren't in it for the glory. He wasn't a well-known name generally, but in the world of HIV and medicine, he was really well-known. You might remember some of the headlines when that tragedy occurred in the summer of 2014 as being, did we lose the cure for AIDS? Did we lose the cure for HIV? Because this man was killed. So by this point in the book, I'm beginning at the beginning of chapter three, we've met a young Yup. We've learned that he's a bit of a bohemian teenager. Really, he wants to be a writer, but he thinks that doing medicine will help him do good in the world. We've also, in another chapter, been introduced to the origins of HIV. Before the living dead roamed the hospital, the sharp angles of their bones poking through paper-thin bedsheets and diaphanous nightgowns, there was one patient 
a harbinger of what would consume the rest of Yup's life. Noah walked into the hospital on the last Sunday in November of 1981. It was Yup's sixth month as a doctor and a quiet day in the emergency room at the Wilhelmina Hospital, a red brick building surrounded by gardens in the centre of Amsterdam. Noah was 42 years old, feverish and pale. His skin dripped a cold sweat. The insides of his cheeks were fuzzy with thick streaks of a white fungus. And then there was the diarrhea, relentless, bloody diarrhea. Doctors admitted him to the infectious disease ward of the hospital. They gave him spoonfuls of antifungal medicine and antibiotics were pushed through his veins until his mouth turned a rosy pink. But still, the doctors were baffled by his unlikely conglomeration of symptoms. The patient needs further evaluation, they wrote in his medical records. He has anemia, and if the oral candida recurs, it would be useful to check his immune function, they wrote. They discharged him on Friday, December 11, 1981. Had they read the New England Journal of Medicine the day before, they would have found 19 Noahs in its pages. Reports were coming in from Los Angeles and New York City of gay men dying from bizarre infections, usually seen in transplant patients or the elderly. Like Noah, their immune systems had been annihilated, and they were plagued with a dozen different bugs. The week that Noah walked out of the Wilhelmina Hospital, the New England Journal of Medicine dedicated its entire original research section to articles on this strange plague. In one report, scientists from L.A. described four four gay men who were brewing a fungus called Pneumocystis carini inside their lungs and candida inside their mouths. Doctors in New York City puzzled over 15 men with worn-out immune systems and persistent herpes sores. By the time that New England Journal of Medicine article was printed, only seven of the 19 men in its pages were still alive. The first hint of catastrophe had arrived earlier that summer, just weeks after Europe graduated medical school. He'd seen those initial case reports in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report. Five short paragraphs told the story of five gay men, each of them arriving at hospitals in L.A. with pneumocystis carini growing inside their chests. The day after Yup read the bulletin, the news jumped from his medical journals to the front pages of newspapers. Rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals, the New York Times headline read. The article cited doctors who said they expected to see cases in cities around Canada, the United States, maybe even Europe. But the article offered more questions than answers. What was certain was that this nameless syndrome was not just confined to the coastal United States, it was fanning across the country, possibly the world. While Yup was reading the case reports in Ocean Away, thousands of people were already infected, and they, neither they nor their doctors knew it. Four days after Noah walked out of the Wilhelmina Hospital, a young man walked into the emergency room at a hospital a 10-minute bike ride away in East Amsterdam. Dr. Peter Rice was on call that Tuesday night, his long white coat flapping around his knees. He picked up the new patient's chart and stroked his trim brown beard. Then he walked over to the cubicle, and there was Daniel, a skinny 19-year-old with mousy blonde hair. His skin was pale with bluish half-moon setting beneath his eyes. Tell me, how long have you been feeling sick? Daniel had been ill since November. First, a prickly red rash dotted his chest and arms, and then itchy red scabs appeared on his bottom. 
The diarrhea started soon after. He was running to the toilet every few hours. Peter Rice examined the patient, and he considered the symptoms. A teenage boy with enlarged glands, oral thrush, and herpes sounded a lot like the journal articles he had read the previous day. The case reports flashed through his head. Young gay men, history of drug use, American cities. Are you sexually active? Peter asked. Daniel said yes. I had sex with a man for the first time ten weeks ago. He was much older than me. I think he's very sick. So on a seemingly ordinary night, in their first few months as a doctor, Peter had tended to the first known Dutch person to be suffering acute HIV infection, and he didn't know it. Daniel, the 19-year-old in the emergency room, had been recently infected with HIV. Peter's suspicions were accurate. Daniel did belong in the medical journals next to the case reports of six men in San Francisco and L.A., but it would be another year and waiting for more information before Peter could prove his epidemiological hunch. And four days before that night shift, Yup had wandered the corridors of the nearby hospital while Noah, the first Dutch AIDS patient, was discharged from the ward, he and his doctors oblivious to the infection festering inside him. In the spring of their medical careers, Yup and Peter had collided with two harbingers, but the pair did not realize they were teetering on the precipice of a global pandemic. It was as if the case reports from the medical journals had walked off the page and into their clinics, dripping ink and leaking T-cells along the hallways. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have some time for the panel to discuss a couple of themes that I have uh, prepared or that were prepared for me as well. Um, And so we'll, we'll talk for a little while on those set questions. And then after that, we hope to have around a half an hour to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, and any in the panel can speak in any order they like. Um, I think the first question I'm going to really put out there is to think about, we've heard, we've heard stories of epidemics and pandemics from a, a century, across a century now. The first question is really how do these epidemics and pandemics shape our society? What are some of the cultural, social, or political aspects uh, in terms of uh, the impacts they have on our society? So who would like to go first with that? And please speak towards or into the microphone if you... Sure, I'm happy to start. Oftentimes, there can be a stark demographic shift that occurs with an epidemic. So thinking about how HIV decimated communities in sub-Saharan Africa, you were just left with a very different family makeup because of this virus. During the height of the HIV epidemic, you had children left and grandparents left and no one in the middle you know, working adults, people in their 30s and 40s were dead from this infection. And suddenly you had what we used to call then AIDS orphans being cared for by their grandparents. We also talk about the demographic shift with the Spanish flu pandemic. And one of the interesting things is that we do consider it a demographic event, but some people argue and opine that demographers haven't studied enough what happened with the Spanish flu pandemic in terms of the demographic shift. One thing, though, that was really obvious is because pandemic flu killed so many people, it killed more people than all of the conflicts of the 20th uh, century combined. And it killed more men than women. 
And so what you had was some people say that women's rights were elevated because of the flu pandemic. And suddenly you had women that were being recruited to work in factories and other jobs that before the flu pandemic wiped out millions of men, they wouldn't have been offered those opportunities. Some have called that a silver lining. I don't know if I would call it that. I think it's interesting that you know, the patriarchy might deem that an okay moment to suddenly invite women to work in factories because the, the society requires a workforce and it's been decimated by this virus. But those are some of the, the cultural impacts that I think about, that the sh- shifting and the change in the... Uh, the makeup of families in sub-Saharan Africa and then going back 100 years, women's rights were affected. Uh, Well, to a certain extent, yes, to a certain extent. I would say that in the case of Spanish flu, um, I think it's important to remember that at the time, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, there wasn't so much of a distinction made historically between people who were victims of the war and people who were victims of the flu. The flu just came in in the last year as a final, forgive me, bloody straw Mm. after four years of total war, the biggest global conflict the world has ever seen. Many, many people, yes, um, we lost 100 million people to Spanish flu, but for many it was simply that their loved ones went away to fight and instead of dying in battle, um, they died in their beds or in camps of flu, and to a certain extent it just became lost in the horror of war. I don't think there's any conscious act on the, on the part of governments to say, right, we've lost all these men, now we, we need to recruit the women. I think it was more that women were already being summoned into service anyway because they needed people back home to drive the fire engines and work in the factories. I think the silver lining take-home message which I would get from... Um, one aftermath of the Spanish flu was the fact that the nursing profession well the nursing um, nursing suddenly became a profession I suppose is a better way to put it because suddenly medical staff realised that you needed nurses to take care of men and women who were incurable there was nothing at that point that medical science could do for Spanish flu but what you needed was an army of other people mainly women who would take care of them and one The one good thing, I think, to come out of it was that in the United States, women of colour who had previously been banned or barred from becoming nurses were recruited into nursing. So, you know, that that to me is is a great outcome. Up till then, if you're a woman of colour, you couldn't become a nurse in the United States, which is appalling. So it shifted who could perhaps practice nursing and it shifted the way that we think of nursing, which makes me think about how HIV has changed the way that we practice medicine because HIV gave rise to a really phenomenal group of activists Mm -hmm. who've been just completely shifted the way that drugs get approved, the way that drugs are advertised, the way that patients interact with their physicians. We've never seen anything like that. You know, in writing this book, I was tracking how long it would often take for a drug to go, you know, from the, the, the laboratory bench to end up at a patient's bedside many, many years, right? Because you're going through clinical trial phases one, two, three, then you apply for approval, then the FDA does all their review work. HIV changed that because patients were lobbying on the footsteps of the, the FDA saying, people are dying, we are dying, there is nothing, you need to give us what 
there is and it's experimental, we want it. And so you saw FDA approval being given within the space of like one and a half years. And it also changed the way that doctors look at patients, I think, because for the first time, we had expert patients and we had patient advocates. And we hadn't seen that so much with any other disease area. Really knowledgeable patients who were sometimes knew more about us than gene mutations or about the the latest drug to come out. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that's um, the positive side of this, if if we can say it's positive, is that um, it was a really informed lobbying group. There were already many people involved in uh, LGBT rights and standing up for themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, things like Stonewall. So there was this very strong gay identity and this outrage from the community of, of, you know, hell, we're dying. Why should we die? Yes, okay, maybe this thing hasn't come through its clinical trial yet, but we don't care. We're going to try it. You said really eloquently how war fueled this epidemic, you know, Mm -hmm. during your reading. And I was thinking about some of the people I interviewed for the book who said that they felt like their love as gay people, that's what the virus was preying on. The fact that we saw this epidemic first rear its head in places like Uh, San Francisco, LA and Amsterdam places where people who were queer had fled to so that they could be openly queer so that they could hold hands with their boyfriend and walk down the street. They couldn't do that in suburban Netherlands or they couldn't do that in Nebraska and that's why you moved to San Francisco so it's really really cruel. Yes, it seems particularly cruel and perhaps there are political reasons I mean I'm not a conspiracy theorist but I often wonder um, if somehow at first these young men were just left to die because um, the government didn't care. Yeah. Uh, just the same way that um, with Spanish flu, uh, Walter Fletcher, who is a great Cambridge research scientist, was lobbying the government to do something um, about quarantine procedures. And he was told, well, it's not really important. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just flu. We get flu every mm-hmm. winter. The London Times said, um, oh, it's just, a bit of a, it's just a bit of a bug. What we need is a good downpour and it'll oh, go away. There was, um, there was a closing of the eyes and there was also a sense that we had a war to win. So um, a bit of flu didn't really matter. The war machine had to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big difference is that with um, HIV... There were hundreds of thousands of people who prepared to stand up and campaign and lobby and be counted and test the drugs on themselves Mm -hmm. because they realised so passionately what they were up against. With Spanish flu, not so much. I I agree with you, and I don't think what you're saying even sounds like a conspiracy theory because you think about the American administration at the time really didn't want to address HIV. The Mm. president at the time, it took him five years to even say those words publicly, HIV AIDS. And in fact, the reason that I moved to America from England, it was in 2011, was to work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So I was an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a group of disease detectives that get sent out when there's an outbreak. And so I got to talk to like my public health heroes who were the same officers but in 1981 right the ones who got sent to the streets of San Francisco and I tell their story in the book too and they said that they would go back to Atlanta you know with all their data and it would show that it was gay men at the beginning predominantly becoming sick and their supervisors would take a red pen and scratch gay out everywhere and scratch sex out and they were like but what, what are you doing? Like, we can't investigate this epidemic unless we look at who's becoming infected. And the bosses were like, yeah, but we're a federal government agency. You know, the CDC is under the Department of Health and Human Services. 
say gay if you want, say anal sex if you want, and then goodbye to our funding. So, you know, it's not conspiracy theorists at all. That's such, how low can the value of human life be that you're like, yeah, something strange is happening, but we're not going to talk about it because it's happening to gay people. That's right. It was referred to um, rather euphemistically as the new cancer. So as it was beginning to filter through the British press, I can remember when I was growing up reading about various people who, various men who were obviously gay, um, and the, it, it didn't say he died of HIV. It would just be um, one of the new cancers. If it was as if it was something so terrible you couldn't even admit it. But which kind of tangentially brings me to something else. Um, at the end of World War One, the pandemic in India of Spanish flu, which was carried there by various ships. Sorry, is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Spanish flu hit India particularly badly in. British India, it was 13 million people. Overall, it was 18 million people. And my colleague, Laura Spinney, it's her idea, I have to say this, not mine, but Laura Spinney's conjecture is that the impact of Spanish flu on India at that time was so profound that it helped trigger independence because people, less people in the Raj died, less white people died than Indian people. And in the independent newspapers... Indian journalists were saying, well, you know, what's going on? Why aren't they doing something? They're leaving us to die like rats. And you can't help but agree with them. I think there's a... Uh, to interject with this as well, Seema and Catherine, what you were mm. saying, but this comes back to how we talk about... I mean, language and framing of pandemics as well. And this is picking up again sort of on the... the um, the politics of the, the early HIV-AIDS epidemic in the United States, and as we were saying, that it was, as you said, it was discussed as, as a gay cancer, but mm. you know, up until, I believe, the late 1980s, it was actually presented. The condition was called GRID, mm. which was the gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. Right. Right? Yeah. So I think we also have to remember, you know, when we're talking about the social conditions that, that form these epidemics as well, but it's also the language behind them as well. Mm. So as we said, not only did Ronald Reagan, I think, not in, in fact say AIDS, um, explicitly until I believe it was 1987, but up until that point, it was really being presented and scientifically presented as grid and not AIDS. So I love, I love that you raised this point because yes, as a writer, I will say, and a journalist, words are really important, but you talked about surveillance, right? Mm. And that was something at the CDC that we really struggled with, that word, because of the populations mm-hmm. who are most vulnerable to of infectious course, yeah. disease, right? So especially when we did our TB surveillance, that word scares the heck out of people who might be the most at risk yeah. for TB. People who have like uncertain immigration mm-hmm. status, all sorts of things. We were like, why are we still using this really sinister, scary word that has awful connotations. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that or um, whether you have any information about whether we are going to change that language because it does not help public health. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm on board with the criticisms that you were saying. I think the main thing that comes out of, of the politics of working with and surveilling marginalized communities that might be more impacted uh, during times of infection or times of epidemic and pandemic um, I think terms aside, um, I haven't thought about the term surveillance being problematic very often, but it's very interesting that you've you've brought that up. But I think this essentially comes back again to um, what happens during times of epidemic or what happens during times of of, of pandemic or public health emergencies. So um, I'm working on a project right now with colleagues at um, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and we're taking a, a medical anthropology approach to, obviously, if there's a public health emergency, you need to send in a health 
health workers and, and task forces as well. But what about engaging people? So, for example, with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, you'd been talking about countries that had been dealing with uh, you know, protracted civil wars for a long time or countries that had been under military dictatorships. So, for example, is the military the best response to send into these traumatized communities again? Right. So I think when dealing with, as we said, vulnerable communities, it's not only essential to have a medical, biomedical approach to this, but we need to take you know, on board and, and, and take a perspective of the social conditions and, and the histories of these particular communities as well. And, and I think the example you were talking about with um, tuberculosis patients, as well as an excellent example of that need to have these sensitivities in times of emergencies as well. Yeah, and, and not addressing those really, really puts us back. So the 2014 to 2016 Ebola epidemic in West Africa was my first big story as a journalist. I just moved to Texas to be a newspaper reporter. I was covering this awful epidemic, which I didn't even know in 2014 was going to end up being the biggest, deadliest Ebola epidemic. And this Liberian man walked into the newsroom one day and said he wanted to talk to me. And he said, we're doing a fundraiser because I have family back in Liberia and I want to raise money. And I said, okay, so is it because you want to send medical supplies? You want to raise money for gloves and masks? Because we'd heard all these stories about how basic medical stuff was lacking and he looked at me and he was like no I want to raise money so I can buy radio airtime and I was like why and he said because my family in Liberia will not believe the government saying there's an Ebola epidemic so I call my mum and dad every week and I say mum and dad you need to leave Monrovia you need to go to the countryside and go stay with your cousins and they say no why would we listen to the government So there was this context, right? It can be really easy to roll your eyes at conspiracy theories and misinformation and like, why would you believe that raw onions can cure Ebola? Well, you might believe it if your government has killed half your family Mm. and it was in very recent memory. In fact, when I would interview experts in Liberia or just interview regular people, they would have like, they would slip on words and they would talk about Ebola war and then they'd correct themselves and say, no, 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 the epidemic, not the war. But the civil war was such a fresh memory and we see that so often in history right now in the DRC is the second biggest Ebola epidemic in history. At the same time, there's an epidemic of escalating armed violence and the people trying to do the vaccinations are being murdered because why would anyone trust you at a time of conflict? Why would they think you're trying to give them an injection to help you? And so I get really frustrated in medicine and public health that we try and separate all these things instead of saying, no, we need to talk about, yes, the virus, but also the context, the civil war and the mistrust. I can say that. I think this yes. nicely leads into the next an, another discussion, which we can just continue on, which is just to turn that first question around and, and say not just what are the social, uh, economic, and cultural and political effects of, of pandemics, but what are the social, economic, political conditions which facilitate, lead to, or in some way shape uh, the spread of infectious diseases as well. I don't know if that interrupted uh, your train. Yes, I was just going to sort of um, finish one point on this, which is uh, the suspicion of being treated or um, inoculation. Uh, At the time, uh, at the end of the First World War, uh, doctors were attempting to formulate a vaccine against Spanish flu, but were frustrated in this um, for many reasons. But globally, there was a distrust in many communities about being treated as we've just been so eloquently told, there was a real fear in South Africa where the outbreak was particularly appalling and thousands of miners died in the De Beers diamond mines and in the gold fields. 
the black men were afraid of being treated. They were afraid of anything that looked like a vaccine because they said, this flu, this is the white man's disease, they're trying to kill us. Uh, so this distrust of health is, is based on perfectly un a perfectly understandable response. And yes, the reliance on folk medicines, on things like wrapping your child in onions from head to foot, or drinking an entire bottle of whiskey, or um, stripping the shops of quinine, these were all valid responses when ordinary people who were dying by their thousands had no idea what was going on. Yeah, and I, yeah. Why would you not try those exactly. things? Exactly, try so, And I think yeah. you know, often I tell these stories that when I talk, and people kind of like laugh at the kind of rumors that spread during Ebola. And I'm like, wait a minute, how petrifying would it be to be in the center of that outbreak? And even when there was truthful information being spread, it kind of backfired. So, for example, the CDC went into West Africa, right, my former employer, and then they said things like, "If you have fever, if you have bleeding, please come see us. Please come to an Ebola treatment unit." And by the way, there is no treatment and no cure for this disease. Completely honest, they weren't lying. And so when I interviewed people, they were like, yeah, so I had this illness. And they, they said there's no cure and no treatment. So uh, I went to the traditional healer instead because yeah. she said that there was a treatment. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I would have done. Um, and so we need to really think carefully about messaging. And I was thinking what you were saying about people, like the, the black men in South Africa being like, mm. I don't want it. And again, thinking of the CDC, you know, in the, it was up until the 1970s that the CDC was conducting unethical experiments on black people in America. So there were black men in Tuskegee, Alabama, who were sick with syphilis, and the CDC lied to them, said there was no treatment, and left them untreated so that we could gather information on what syphilis does to the body. So we would have... Yes, it was. Yes. No, no, no. Tuskegee ended in 1973. Yes, it carried on. And there was a whistleblower who tried and twice... No, 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 I've, I've written a book about this. Uh, it comes out later this year. So no, it went on really long. And the reason I make that point about it went on so long was because very recently, there was a massive outbreak of TB in Alabama. And so my colleagues are there lamenting, oh my God, we're offering free testing. Now we're offering $20 if you come get TB testing. Why is no one coming? Why is the TB epidemic getting worse? And I'm like, well, because up until the 70s, we were the bad guys. And if you look on Google Maps, where the syphilis study was done up until 1973, it's like an hour's drive from where the TB outbreak is happening in Alabama. You talk to people there, and they'll say, yeah, my granddad told me you shouldn't trust white doctors. So why would I go? I'm sick, but the government's here. This is what the government did in quite recent memory. Like, my parents remember that. Extraordinary. Mm. Yes, and terrifying. Yeah. And then to also think about directly what your, your question, um, and tell me what you think about this, because some of the reading that I've done has shown that the H1N1 Spanish flu may not have been as virulent as we sometimes say. So some of the reading I found is like, yes, it was this terrible virus, but actually some of the things that went towards this high case fatality rate was the war. So people yeah. being malnourished and stressed. Yeah. And then if you look at the, um, the Hong Kong pandemic flu that happened in 1968, really really interesting thing that epidemiologists say about three quarters of a million people died of that Hong Kong flu but epidemiologists say that it would have been more if the epidemic hadn't happened the same time as the school holidays 
And just the fact that hundreds and thousands of kids weren't packed in schools at the same time might have saved us from this being a deadlier epidemic. And the second thing they say is that by the 60s and 70s, you know, we had antibiotics. One of the things that kills you with flu, and I've had patients die of it when I worked at home in hospital, the young patients, in fact, it's not just the virus, it's the way it leaves you vulnerable to secondary bacterial infections. Yes, and that that is definitely... um one of the reasons why so many people succumbed to Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, it was because, yes, the flu varied in virulence from community to community. There were certain at-risk groups, which were young, healthy adults, pregnant women and nursing mothers, the last group you'd expect if you know anything about flu. There was also the fact that many, many of the patients developed secondary infections, mm-hmm. for which, at that point, there were no antibiotics, Some of them would have had, ultimately, strong enough immune systems to overcome it, but many, many people died of pneumonia, bronchitis, and related conditions. And this was also partly due to um, social circumstances, the fact that many of them were from humble backgrounds, or they were crowded together in slums or tenements or ghettos. So the lack of um, hygiene and the lack of quarantine definitely contributed to their deaths. So yes, you can't, I can't just sort of say one thing, Spanish flu, or the Spanish lady, as it was fancifully known. As with all... Why does it have pan- to be a woman? Well, I, I'll come to that in a second. As with all pandemics, there were certain um, circumstances which all contributed to this nightmarish outcome. Mm-hmm. The Spanish lady was a trope that came up, um, a misogynistic cartoon. I don't have the origin, I don't know who who first came up with it, but um, cartoons and newspapers started portraying Spanish flu as a a caricature of a Spanish woman uh, dressed as a flamenco dancer with a mantilla, and instead of a face, she has a skull, so she's kind of a lady grinning skull, and it is a misogynistic image because it's assumed that the Spanish lady was a gypsy, um, i.e. prostitute, i.e. free with her favours and spreading disease. Mm. But I kind of turned it round. I, I thought, well, this is, it's interesting the way that this was used and this persisted. But that's an interesting... Thinking mm. of that and, and the pandemics that then came forward, it's interesting there's always been this attempt then to link infection and contagion and disease with transient marginal populations as well. So, again, we can talk about the Spanish lady, which you mm. just brought up. Um, I think during the HIV-AIDS pandemic, it was... People were supposed to avoid the three H's, wasn't it? Haitians, okay. hemophiliacs, and homosexuals um, as well. You know, um, well, obviously, yeah, yeah. stigmatization of West Africans during the Ebola outbreak, but there's always this need to constantly sort of link the disease, you know, which many of us can see with sort of with human populations as well. Yeah, I think that that's very good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that nicely maybe takes me into the last theme I wanted to cover in this section, which is, is to think about the stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the stories that people construct around disease, around epidemic spread and pandemic, but there's also the stories that, that writers and journalists and authors tell about um, these spreads. And so maybe your thoughts on, on the connections between uh, our human experience, literature that we write from it, maybe the historical record and the science and how they link together when we, when we construct these stories. Well, certainly. Um, and I know that your experience will, will be very, very different. But certainly... Uh, With Spanish flu, I was disappointed by the lack of um, a real cultural product from Spanish flu. uh, There is no great novel of Spanish flu. There are operas about 
tuberculosis, for instance. Um, but Spanish flu was part of a collective act of forgetting. So mm. I do have some literary um, sort of context for you. But basically, in this country, we had Robert Graves, who mentions it in his memoir, Goodbye to All That. But there's very, very little. There are passing comments and things like the Diaries of Virginia Woolf, but there isn't that much about it, because I think it was so horrific that people did not want to remember it. They didn't want to think that their loved ones had died in this way. In the United States, you get a bit more. You get Mary McCarthy remembering her parents dying of Spanish flu in memories of a Catholic girlhood. You get Catherine Ann Porter's um, Pale Horse, Pale, uh, Pale Rider, which is about her experience, although it's somewhat um, fictionalised. You get the odd passing reference, something like it's a wonderful life. It turns out that a major character's life has been changed because somebody's son died of Spanish flu in the war. But it, and it's mentioned by Thomas Wolfe as well. But it's always on the margins. Some writers had it and survived, like Steinbeck. But again, there's this tiptoeing around it. The, the best example is William Maxwell, who was an editor of The New Yorker. And he wrote a memoir about losing his, his mother and baby brother. But it's almost as if, even for writers, it's so ghastly, they can't, cannot contemplate it. So it's tucked away in the margins. There isn't really a literary culture of Spanish flu. You're so right, and it's changing now, because have you all heard of a literary genre called flu-lit? So apparently, we love reading about the flu now, oh, right, and yeah. we love thinking uh, in terms of like sci-fi and speculative fiction of setting the scene um, with this dystopia of a virus that wipes out like 94.5% of humanity. So I don't know if any of you have read Station Eleven. It came out a couple of years ago, and it doesn't go so much into the disease part, but it begins with, this is where we are. It's this dystopian future because so many have been wiped out by this illness, and I think in medicine and, of course, in literature, people do lament the fact that we don't have um, a, this really like solid literary base about the Spanish flu or about other um, epidemics. That changed a bit with Downton Abbey. So I don't know if anyone watched <laughs> yes. that, but a lot of people were quite happy that it got covered. Uh, the yeah. Spanish flu came up in that. Also because um, one of the people that dies in it is really young. And so kind of it was epidemiologically true in some ways in terms of like a young person dying. It was. It, and uh, it rang true for me because my father was a great deal older than my mother and both his parents he was orphaned because his parents died of Spanish flu and they were young so um but even then, I thought Downton Abbey giving it some airtime was, was a good thing. Yeah. And if anyone is interested in a list of flu-lit current books, novels, yeah. uh, just let me know because I, I have the list because I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that it's a bit different with HIV, right? We do have Absolutely. many more memoirs, often not written by the most marginalised people, of course. Um, but one book that I used to teach my public health students is And the Band Played On. Mm -hmm. But you think about the history of that book. The author of that book was a journalist, and he was a gay man. He saw the beginnings of that epidemic as it was killing his friends and loved ones. He had to fight his editor to say, this is something I should be covering and you need to publish it. And at first his editor was like, what is this thing, some flu, gay flu they used to call it? And it wasn't until it became like a really significant epidemic that he was able to publish those columns and then he was able to write a book that I think really enhances our understanding of that epidemic. Mm. And then of course you've got the sort of the, the massive things that um, on um, World AIDS Day, 
I saw a movie, well, a movie, a documentary made years ago about um, the American quilt. Mm. And it's called Tales from the Quilt. And it's all about uh, different families who, who made commemorative pieces of a giant patchwork quilt which was just which was eventually unveiled on the lawns of, of um, the White House and each piece of the quilt was about some person they'd lost and yes it was about gay men it was also about people who'd been um, infected with dodgy transfusions or children they'd lost so it was, a, it was across the spectrum and it's a very powerful and moving piece of documentary Great. Okay, well, I think that would be a nice point to then uh, open up to, to the room. We've covered a number of different themes. Um, we talked about the impact that pandemics have, and we talked about crises that they open up, and how, uh, I think, as a social scientist, and LSE being a school of social science, I'm always looking for those kind of social science themes we can think about. And, and I really liked how, when thinking about pandemics causing crises, these are moments for social change. And, and, and it's people driving that social change. And, and sometimes people seize on tragedy in order to advance social agendas and, and, and advance social rights in certain cases. And I think that's something to think about, that, that sometimes tragedies can produce opportunities as well for change. Uh, we talked a bit about trust. That's another kind of big theme when studying yeah. health, trust in the medical profession, but how trust is not just based on science, and it's not just based on the facts of science, which sometimes in public health and, and the clinical communities they think, but trust is built in social relations. It's built on the histories, histories of exploitation, histories of stigmatization, affect the trust we have in organized uh, governance and governance of disease. And then we talked about the stories we tell, and we talked about the histories um, and, and how Basically, you know, medical history is, it's obviously documented by historians, but it's picked up and popularized by journalists, by, pub, by media, by authors, um, and it can at times be neglected, and times, you know, be, be widely publicized, and it's, it's very much a function of that. But we have about 30 minutes left, and so I'd like to very much open it up now to questions uh, from, from the audience. So if you could put your hands up. I'll try and uh, please wait for a microphone. Please introduce your, your name and your affiliation. So can I start uh, here with the, the woman in the red uh, jumper and then move to the man in front? Of that. Um, my name's Emma. I'm just here um, to... I'm not affiliated in, in any way, but um, I just had a question for you, Catherine. You mentioned um, malnutrition and lack of quarantine and that made me think about the role of poverty in particular the Spanish flu and in, dependent on your answer how culpable the government are in which case or whether you think it's something that didn't discriminate to start off with just the environment people were in when it kind of uh, thanks for your question, Emma. Um, basically, I started off with the premise that Spanish flu didn't differentiate, that it spread between um, the rich and the poor alike. I soon realised that this was misguided, and in fact, in the majority of the people who died came from deprived backgrounds, and the war didn't help because not only were people suffering from malnutrition, but they were suffering from four years of bereavement, anxiety, <coughs> um, food rationing, Zeppelin in this country, Zeppelin raids... But I think in many respects um, it was poverty-driven and governments were cul culpable across the globe. It's no accident that it wiped out greater numbers in the most poverty-stricken areas of Asia and Africa. So I think to a certain extent people from the upper and middle classes did suffer, but not in such great numbers as is all the, always the way. These days, if we had an outbreak of that severity in this country alone, there would be a public inquiry. 
But um, back then, everybody was so shocked and shattered and eager to forget that, what I, again, what I call this collective act of forgetting went on. We also have to remember that it seems strange to us, but it was not uncommon to die of flu back then. Mm. Traditionally, mm-hmm. it was the, the young and the elderly and people with a compromised immune system who would be carried off anyway. Let's take a few more. Uh, maybe, should we take two or three at a time? Would that be all right? Or, Might be a good idea. Uh, but was there a hand here? Or, so one here and then here, and then after, we'll take those two, and then the next two will be... So uh, this gentleman. Um, hello, I'm Norman Harvey from the RSL. Um, and um, <clears throat> I just wondered whether there had been any advances in the um, dealing with the animal reservoir, the interface between these animal reservoirs and uh, the human populations, which uh, from which to which the disease then spreads once it's become more virulent. Okay. So you're just you're wondering if there's research been done on or research advanced on animal human uh, reservoirs for pandemic. Case of Ebola that's mm-hmm. been related to poverty, I suppose, and uh, food supply and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was an example I thought of, but uh, I don't know what sort of new technology they might have to deal with it in the animal population before it gets to, to humans. Okay. Let's have one more question uh, here, and then we'll see who, if anyone on the panel wants to address this. Hello, my name's Sandy. I'm a member of RSL. Um, to Catherine, or, or to the other two as well, I, one thing you don't seem to have mentioned is religion in any of this. I wondered if there was any sort of social response to that. I mean, for instance, at the end of the First World War, was there any attempt at saying, well, this is God paying you back for having this dreadful war? Okay. Indeed, Sandy, indeed there was. Uh, is it okay if I answer straight Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sandy, indeed there was. Um, in South Africa in particular... Uh, the Boer population were um, being told that, uh, yes, this is punishment from God um, for World War I, while the, block, the black population um, believed that they were being punished by, by God for other reasons. So that there was an element of this. Um, on a positive note, though, particularly in um, the United States, what was heartening to read about was people from different communities all getting together to deal with the fallout of Spanish flu. So in, say, Philadelphia, you get people from Catholic, Jewish, Episcopalian um, and other backgrounds all getting together to pick up the bodies, um, take them to morgues, nurse the sick. And to some extent in South Africa as well, the the colour bar was kind of um, briefly ignored so that people could care for each other. Sadly, it was soon restored again as soon as people began to recover. But yes, uh, and also religion um, proved a great source of comfort to some of the victims. But religious burials, for instance, were quickly dispensed with because there simply weren't the resources, so people universally were buried in, in mass graves. I also read some case reports from the United States during Spanish flu where people said that they stopped going to church to worship because they were scared of being in proximity with too many other people. So though it changed social behavior in that way, you didn't want to be so close. Then I was thinking about the most recent Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Public health workers were going in and saying, you have to incinerate the dead. And if you're going into a largely Muslim area and saying that, that's not something Mm -hmm. you want to do to your loved ones. If you're Muslim, you want to do the 
to the very traditional burial and public health workers, maybe we didn't have the best language or messaging around why that was so important. Um, and also I learned in Liberia that mourning is very ritualistic in Liberia. You go to the place, the very place where your parents are buried. There's a, a national day of mourning, in fact. One of the things the survivors I interviewed lamented was that they didn't know where their loved ones were. Yeah. And they felt really sad that they were robbed of their ritualistic way of mourning their dead. Thank you. And the previous question about uh, if anyone on the panel has ideas or knowledge about, I think it was about are there new ways of conceptual or studying or, or thinking about or researching possible animal to human infections and ways to prevent? Um, what I would say to that is um, I think definitely in um, the infectious disease community and, and practitioner community and epidemiologists, I think, I think the recognition of the criticalness of, of um, human animal interface has always been there. What I would say, however, post-Ebola outbreak, as you were saying in West Africa, is that for the larger global health community, there's much more of a recognition of that vital link and the need to assess and to surveil where that can potentially spill over as well. And so what I would say is that a lot of the um, digital surveillance technologies that are being rolled out take that into account, but more broadly, um, there's a lot of discussions now within global health. I mean, we are always asking as global health practitioners, you know, what is global health? But then there's been a lot of push in recent years to talk about this concept of planetary health, which is much more interlinked and much more networked and would take things into account, like what happens at the interface of, you know, human, animal, and other planetary aspects as well. So... I would say there are um, there's technological advancements happening in that in that area right now as well, but also I think larger theoretical discussions with the global health community about you know taking in aspects that aren't just you know exclusive to human populations when thinking about pandemic and, and potential pandemic outbreaks. Seventy-five percent of emerging infections in us in humans are zoonotic, meaning you know they come from animals to us. Um, it's not taught very well in medical school, I will say. As a former medical student, there's a concept called One Health, which looks at how interlinked all of our health is, right? The humans and monkeys and bats, all of that. One Health is taught in vet schools and not in medical schools. And I think that really needs to change. I didn't hear about this concept of One Health until I trained to be a public health physician. Uh, and, and given, you know, have you guys seen the film Contagion? Uh, the Kate Winslet plays an epidemic intelligence service officer in it. It's kind of fun. You know, I watch it and like, like, no, that's not accurate. No, it wouldn't happen like that. But the, my favorite moment of that um, film is right at the end when you see this scene of a big truck going through a rainforest and like knocking down the trees and you see a bat like fly off because that's what's happening. Like we're encroaching more and more on wildlife. In the US, we're seeing it just people want really lovely country homes. So they're building into forests and we're seeing Lyme disease like go through the roof. Okay, let's get a couple more questions. So there was a gentleman at the front here and then there was a hand at the back. So if we can get those two. Uh, thank you, my name is Rupani, I'm alumni. Uh, I just wonder, you see whether poverty, gross poverty plays very important part. And there is a failure on the part of the pharmaceutical company where such as until very lately the, in Orissa, you see of India, uh, the elephantiasis and the leprosy was not. Now, fortunately, you see there are some sort of medication. But I think uh, main main, you see, the epidemic we can see is now in Yemen, for instance. Uh, the situation is so grave 
And if you talk about case of Iraq, where widows and orphans are, uh, there is in Basra, for instance, in the river, uh, the disease and the eating of uh, fishes which are contaminated. Yeah. Uh, so we have to look at the broad section of the uh, poverty that plays very important part and the failure on the part of the uh, Western country to invade and make, and now there is a, also worries about attacking Iran, you see. And so these are all issues which are really, uh, the poor countries get the very bad deal yeah. in all these uh, circumstances. Yeah. Thank you for that. Can we take one more question and then panel? So uh, the gentleman at the back, I think. Hi, my name is uh, Joel, I'm also unaffiliated, and this is really sort of directed to Dr. Roberts. Um, looking back at sort of disinformation, do you feel that there is an obligation of social media companies to counter sort of dangerous medical misinformation like the anti-vaccine movement, yeah. uh, but also sort of track where there have been hotspots of people spreading this information to then pass to the government and say, look, there is a lot of this information being passed around or misinformation being passed around in this particular town. You may need to step up your sort of counter narrative on that. So um, would someone like to start with the first? Uh... Sure. Yeah, those things are definitely interlinked, right? Epidemics of infectious disease plus poverty plus conflict. Just a few years ago, when bombs were dropped on the West Bank, we suddenly saw a reemergence of what should be like ancient diseases like cholera come back because the water system was compromised, sewage was running into the drinking water, and suddenly kids were dying of diseases that should not be happening right now. In Yemen, the, the death count from cholera is incredibly high and that's often the way I think about conflict and how it intersects. You think about um, in northern Nigeria and Afghanistan, polio continued for a longer time than everywhere else because how were you going to send vaccinators in to vaccinate people when there was conflict happening? So I, I often was aware of that as a public health doctor and then when my mentor was killed... I thought, oh my God, what a tragic loss to humanity that we lost this amazing scientist. And it was, again, because of freaking conflict. They were, you know, putting ground-to-air Buke missiles into the air because Russia had annexed Crimea. So I wish we wouldn't try and separate disease from all of these things because we're human. We live in a world and an ecosystem where all of these things are spreading. And yes, they're very much interwoven. Stephen, do you want to comment on the question? Yes, thank you. you. Um, for the gentleman at the back, um, I think that's an excellent point. Um, I think um, one of the, as, as I kind of picked up in my presentation, but one of the, I think the real um, leaps that we've had with big data is, is the ability to access information, whether it's correct information or timely information, um, in an accelerated way. But I think as you've really rightfully pointed out, um, you know, these same avenues are used for disseminating uh, incorrect information. Um, the Wellcome Trust recently was doing um, a piece on um, information, bad information or misinformation going viral on the internet and through social media as well. And I think this point that you bring up about, about anti, the anti-vaccine movement, which has been really prominent uh, in reporting and media now, um, is a really fascinating example of how um, this information can be these systems of information can be can be abused. Um, I agree that I think you know social media could be a really powerful venue in which to then inform governments as well about how um, you know education policies or outreach can be targeted for certain areas. That being said, I'm not sure if that is necessarily the remedy in which we need to 
correct you know the wrongs of things like the anti anti vaccine movement as well. Um, but I think it, it represents sort of a very interesting venue going forth of what you know, the pairings of social media and, and government can do for, for enhancing problems like this. I think there would be maybe perhaps immense, you know, social, ethical, and legal challenges associated with things like that as well. And, and also the information just not, not being taken into receipt by those it's meant for as well, because we can see that playing out already. The information on vaccines is widely available and, and, and is widely disseminated, but it's, you know, it's not being accepted. But a very interesting point, I think. Okay, I think we might have time for one or two more questions. Are there any more? Hands? Uh, just want to check I'm not missing any in the room. Okay, th- let's take the two uh, in the back there as the last two. Uh, hi, I'm Chris. Um, I, my question is more just around how you guys think um, we, we're kind of gauging, best to gauge pandemics. Um, it seems like it kind of coalesces around two things, one being your more cultural cues and your social... Um, discourse. Um, I think you guys talk a bit about Ebola and how much that was underreported and things like Spanish flu in um, in India uh, that kind of relied more on journalism potentially compared to your more hard data, your your hospital records, kind of looking historically, and then more uh, Dr. Roberts as you talk about kind of these bigger data pools that are coming together. Um, yeah, so I'd just be interested to kind of get your impression on 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 that. And can we have the last question as well? I think you can do that. Hi, I'm Stefan. Um, kind of leans on from this question a little bit as well. I just want to know if you think pandemics are more likely in the current age. And yes. Yes. <laughs> and um, kind of what the panel believes are the best ways to prepare. I don't know if that, that, <laughs> that's possible. Some big questions to end on. Who would like to engage with either of those? So that last question was, are pandemics more likely to occur, and what's the best way to prepare for them? I mean, I think, I think the panel is unanimous in agreeing <laughs> that the answer is yes, that, that they are, and, and we've certainly seen that as well. Um, I mean, if we're not talking about pandemics necessarily on, on, on the level of Spanish flu or HIV-AIDS in the 1980s and 1990s, we are still seeing very serious uh, localized epidemics of things like um, the Middle Eastern um, respiratory virus, which, which emerged in, in 2013 as well. We're seeing Ebola, um, which obviously is a very serious health emergency, but not yet is at pandemic status as well. Um, you know, there's, there's these discussions the World Health Organization talks about with disease X, yeah. which will be a respiratory uh, born virus that we're told as well. So um, yes, I think that you know that, that it will happen. Yeah. In terms of preparedness um, and ways to prepare, I would say that um, it's always something that uh, is regarded as great danger. In the UK, the Home Office has preparations for a flu well epidemic, which take precedence to any kind of terrorist threat. So they know that a bad epidemic of flu in this country, particularly in the winter, could knock our economy for six. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, as Seam will tell us, um, you've got the uh, Centre for Disease Control, where, again, they're all primed for such an occurrence. And while, hopefully, it wouldn't be on quite the scale of 1918 for various reasons, there is always the dangerous. You know, you can never say never. I mean, only today I was reading a report in The Times... Um, where a doctor at St Mary's uh, in London was saying that uh, they've had um, cases of flu, they've had about 2,000 cases of flu where patients have had to go into ICU because their symptoms were so great. Um, 
this is across the country, not just, just St Mary's, 198 people have died. Okay, so you think that's just a bad flu epidemic. It was pretty much under the radar because it wasn't as bad as it has been in this country, say, a year ago with the so-called Aussie flu. But 198 people dying of flu in the UK is pretty serious when you take into account that this strain of flu is apparently AH1N1 and I'll put, give its proper name AH1N1PDM09 and the people who suffered um, so severely that they had to go into ICU were mainly young and middle-aged. So very spooky. We're going to have everyone so scared before they leave tonight. <laughs> it's Just, my job. Yes. Do you know how, how many people died of flu in the US last year? Tell me. 80,000, wow. which is double the usual yeah. average. So yes, we are primed for a pandemic. What we're seeing now epidemiologically is bigger epidemics. Yes, you should definitely put your fingers in your ears. Uh, bigger epidemics. We are seeing more urban epidemics and epidemics that go on for longer. And as someone who worked in the Epidemic Intelligence Service as a disease responder, I would say we're not ready. And the reason we're not ready is because often we invest resources where we live, which sounds like it may makes sense, right? Except the next epidemic may not start here. So we need to invest in healthcare systems mm -hmm. everywhere. That means Palestine and that means Monrovia and it means everywhere because, you know, I lived in Dallas and a few months after I moved to Dallas, Ebola arrived in Dallas from Liberia. It's exactly what we're going to keep seeing. So for preparedness, we need to see that investment in health systems around the world. Globally, yes. yes. Yeah. I think just, Asima, and to, to add to that as well, um, kind of locating discussions back against um, um, big data again and these new surveillance systems that have been rolled out, digital surveillance systems. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of states investing in these um, over the past 20 years. The World Health Organization has very much been on board with using uh, the information supplied by it as well. But in fact, uh, in the run-up to the 2014 um, Ebola outbreak, so uh, one of these systems, uh, which is called HealthMap, um, it was founded by the Boston Children's Hospital. Um, it uses um, Google Map interfacing, um, and it basically pulls big data from the internet to um, get disease warnings. Um, in uh, several um, weeks before the initial uh, identification uh, of Ebola at the time, uh, which was in uh, remote Guinea, uh, the health map system identified a media report um, from an online newspaper that had said that there was a number of deaths from a myster mysterious hemorrhagic fever that had occurred. As we said, this had happened several weeks before the official notifications of Ebola and Ebola had been happening for some time. But I think the thing to highlight and emphasize in these cases is that you know, states and governmental health organizations can spend tons and tons of money on investing in these sort of technologies. But at the end of the day, if the basic health infrastructures, which we've been, we've been emphasizing to this point, are not in place, which was the case with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, then these systems are only going to be sending signals that are going to be mixed, uh, yeah. missed, essentially. Yeah. And uh, just a quick Google search will show you three, maybe four or five independent expert investigations of the WHO that say that its response to Ebola was too little, too late, and was fundamentally flawed. So that doesn't instill much, you know, <laughs> happiness or reassurance either <laughs> no. that the world's public health agency kind of did a really terrible mm. job and isn't ready for the next one. Sorry. But perhaps, perhaps <laughs> before we leave, we could, 
try and at least be a little bit optimistic in that lessons can be learned from this, right? And that's why we have these discussions, and that's why we have people here, and that's why we write histories about it and write stories about it, and we study it as well in, in research to learn these lessons, to learn lessons about how do we build trust in communities, to learn lessons about the importance of health systems to be resilient to whatever crisis comes up, to learn lessons about how do we govern, collaborate, share information to be better prepared. So there are gaps in our learning. There's gaps in our knowledge and there's gaps there, but I think we have some idea of the directions we need to head. And so I think I'll try and end it on a positive note there. And say thank you very much to our three speakers. As I mentioned before, their books are, going, are for sale now at the back, and I believe that the authors are going to stay for a bit uh, to sign as well. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.